morning. One of the saddest verses in the entire Bible, I believe, is Judges 2, chapter 10. And there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work He had done for Israel. It's quite stunning to say the least. How on earth is it possible that after some of the most powerful and mighty acts that God has ever done on this planet, that anyone would not know God or what He had done, let alone an entire generation of people? The psalm we're about to dig into this morning flies right in the face of that. It's a psalm that needs to become a part of our thinking and a part of our prayers that we might not ever be a generation that allows the one after us to neither know God nor what he has done. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word, for teaching us, stirring our hearts and our spirit, God, through your word, which is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. God, we pray that you would speak mightily to us, boldly, yet also lovingly and kindly. God, we have a picture of who you are. May it become bigger, may it become greater, that you might draw us yet even closer to you, for your glory, God, that we might share with the next generation. We might share with all how great you are. It's in your son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. We're going to be looking at Psalm 145 this morning. So if you'd like to turn to Psalm 145 in your Bibles. Psalm 145 begins with a very high view of God. Verse 1 says, I will extol you, my God and King. Right off the bat, it puts God as the focus. I will display God. This word extol, I will display, I will display God. I will lift him higher. I will raise him up. And then verse 2, every day I will bless you, God. I will give thanks to you. I will celebrate you. I will boast about who you are. And then verse 3, Great is the Lord. I love this word great. It, um, it means bigger, right? Uh, it means exceedingly, extremely, abundantly, far more. It means high, larger, very much more, as though there were nothing else to compare with what you are describing. And greatly to be praised. So the degree to which God is great, that is the degree to which we are to praise him. Our praise is to be far and above our praise for any other thing or any other person we know or can think of. In the end of verse 3, and his greatness is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. It's beyond finding out. It's beyond numeration. As, as I read these first three verses, it, it, it made me think that, that maybe we need to have another vocabulary change here in our church. 
um, and stop using the word great so lightly. Um, I, I, I want to thank Aaron um, for wrecking my vocabulary. Um, however many years ago it was when he said, only God is awesome. I used to use that word all the time. So ever since then, I've been a recovering awesome abuser. <laughs> because I said everything was awesome. And I had no discernment in terms of things that truly were awesome and things that were not. But I have learned over time that only God is awesome. And I believe the same could be said of this word, great. We say everything is great. Our food, our clothes, our hair, even the work that we do. Our kids clean their rooms and we say, great job. I mean, really? Is it really that great? When a child makes their bed or cleans their room, is it truly far and above and beyond exceedingly greater than any other child who has also cleaned their room? No, it's not. It's not at all. Um, I don't know what you should tell your kids, but probably not great job. <laughs> because only God truly does great things. He alone is greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. God is high. He is lifted up. He is exalted. He is great. And, and here, after verse 3, is where the psalm really takes a turn. It says here what we are going to do, how we are going to present him to the next generation. It says, one generation shall commend your works to another, shall declare your mighty acts. Here's the thing. We're not to, to walk around saying, great is the Lord, great is the Lord, and then just go on with the rest of our lives. God is so great. God is so awesome. And then act as if that's a, a separate part of our lives. No, instead, we ought to be saying, you are great, you are great. And then tell the world, God is great. God is great. You are awesome. You are awesome. And then tell the world, God is awesome. That is how we are to be living our lives, presenting God to the world, commending him, sharing him, declaring him. One generation shall commend your works to another. I love that. From one generation to the next. We are to present. We are to pass along. We are to declare. We are to shout. We are to tell. In Psalm 78, Asaph said, The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done, we will not hide them from our children, but tell the coming generation and in Psalm 71, the psalmist declares this. I love this, especially because I'm getting older. It says, O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I am still proclaiming your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hair, which I have some, and I don't like it. But anyway, I, I understand what he's saying. He's saying, even to old age and gray hair, O oh God, do not forsake me until... I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all 
who are yet to come. How awesome to have that be written on our tombstones. He or she was not taken until they proclaimed to the next generation who God was and what he had done. And all throughout the Bible, there seems to be this theme of tell others, let them know, pass this along, don't hide what you know, go into all the world and share. And here in Psalm 145, we find ourselves right in the midst of that theme. This psalm tells us in verse 4, commend God's works. And it says, declare God's mighty acts. In verse 5, speak of God's wondrous works. Verse 6, speak of the might of God's awesome deeds and declare God's greatness. Verse 7, pour forth God's goodness. Sing aloud of God's righteousness. Verse 10, bless or boast of God. Verse 11, speak of his glory. Tell of his power. Verse 12, make known to the children God's mighty deeds. And verse 21, speak the praise of God and let all flesh praise God. Basically, let them shout to the next generation, God is great. So we know we are to present and declare God. And certainly, when we think about that, there's so much to tell about God. We, we would be foolish to just contain it to this psalm. Certainly, you know, the scriptures tell us that we are to proclaim the whole counsel of God from beginning to end. But for this morning, we want to look at what this psalm, Psalm 145, specifically encourages us to pass along. And it's not entirely what you might think that it is. Of course, there are the, what I'm going to call the good things that we are to pass along. If you look at verses 8 and 9, in verses 8 and 9, we are told that God is gracious, he is merciful, he is slow to anger, abounding in love, good, and again, merciful. Or maybe your translation says compassionate. Then later in verses 13 to 20, we are told that God is faithful, kind. He upholds all who are falling. There's so much comfort in that, right? Because we, we, we remember, we know well the times in our lives when we are falling. Yet God is there holding us up. It says he raises up all who are bowed down. He gives food in due season. He satisfies our desires. He is righteous. He is kind. He is near to all who call on him. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. In verse 20, he preserves all who love him. These are very much a part of who God is. These are what we typically think of as the good things about God. We like these things. These things make us happy. In fact, when we paint a picture of God, we often use brush strokes that show this side of God, this good side of him, this loving side of him. For example, when we tell our children about God, 
We tell them the good stories, right? We tell them about how God parted the Red Sea. We tell them about how Jesus healed the blind man, about how he fed the 5,000. The problem is, is we, I think we, especially our culture, maybe even especially church culture, tries so hard to paint a picture of God that is so positive that we end up painting a picture that really isn't God at all. It's a God that we have created. It's like going to a buffet and saying, I'm going to take a scoop of God's love, and I'm going to take a scoop of his righteousness, I'm going to take a scoop of his um, kindness, but I'm going to pass on the holiness. I don't want none of that. And I'm going to pass on the sanctification, and I'm going to pass on God's wrath towards sin. While you might have a plate full of things that you like and that make you happy, you're not experiencing the whole of who God is. For example, if I, if I were to ask somebody who knew me well to describe who I am and to do so publicly, right? They, they could come up here and they could tell you um, quite possibly some very flattering things, maybe even some things that would be very humbling for me, but I imagine they would tell you the good things. But here's the thing. If they failed to mention, for example, that I struggle with anger, if they failed to say he is angry, they would not be giving you an accurate picture of who I am. And in the same way, not exactly the same way, but kind of the same way, when we try to describe God or have an accurate picture of who he is, while we are quick to include things that make him out to be good and loving, we often leave out the things that make him mighty, that make him powerful. We, I understand there's a huge difference between God and me. He is great and I am not. So when you mention, I need to. When you mention my being angry, you know we look at that as well. That's a negative. That kind of brings you down. You're not really who I thought you were. But when we mention those things about God, His His righteousness, His wrath, His anger, those things don't bring Him down at all. We should never think less of Him because of those things. Oh, you're an angry God. Well, I don't like that. I don't think as I don't think as highly of you anymore. No, we do that in human terms. We should never do that with God. We should never think less of Him. We should never bring Him down, because the truth is, God is not either loving or powerful. He is both. He is not either kind or mighty. He is both. So there are good things that this psalm tells us that we ought to be commending, proclaiming, presenting to the next generation. But there are other things, mighty things, powerful things, angry things about God as well. And they don't jump to the surface because English does not always do a very good job 
of translating Hebrew. And part of that is because of the way we use our words, like the way we use awesome. We, you know, we say awesome, we, we picture a, a, a surfer in California going, woo, you know. We forget that awesome means like you are struck with awe. And you stand before God and you're like, oh, you know. Or words like great, and we just think, oh, you know, like, those are some great flowers, you know. And we're just like, no, those flowers aren't great. God is great. He's far and above. So verse 5, let's, uh, for the sake of time, I'm only going to be looking at a few of these other brush strokes of who God is. One of them is in verse 5. It says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Of course, we've, we've already mentioned that there, you know, we see this word wondrous or wonderful. And, and again, it brings to mind God's love, his kindness, his mercy, these, 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 these really good things. But we, we need to keep this in mind. Do you know when, in Exodus 3.20, when God speaks to Pharaoh through Moses, he says this, he says, I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with wonders that I will do. And then Pharaoh will let you go. Consider that. Those are the wonders of God. Each of the plagues done against Israel, God calls a wonder, right? And we're, we're thinking, wait, what? That's wonder? What, what? I mean, we're lost in this, right? Water turning into blood, dead livestock, boils on our skin, hail, locusts, the death of everyone's firstborn. All of these are considered the wonders of God. And after bringing them out of Egypt, supplying, with, supplying his people with the, the tablets, a second time, God said in Exodus 34.10, said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all of your people, I will do wonders such as have not been created in all of the earth or any nation And all the people among you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do. God's wonders. And he says, such has not been created in all of the earth. There's there's another place in scripture that, that, that mentions that in reference to God doing something, where it says that he's going to do something such as not been created. And that was in Numbers chapter 16, where God opened the earth on Korah, and the families and the men of Korah opened the earth and swallowed them whole because of their disobedience towards God. In that place, God said, I'm going to create something new. I'm going to do something that will blow your mind. And it most certainly did. After God did that, the Israelites screamed and they ran. 
they were like, whoa, that was awesome. That was wonderful. And appropriately so. In verse 6 of Psalm 145, it says, They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Again, the English here is misleading because the Hebrew word for might is actually the word we should think of fear or fright or terrible things that would cause an astonishment or an awe of God. In Deuteronomy 4, God says that we are to pass what we have seen on to the next generation so that they may learn to fear me. That's the same word, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they may live on earth and may teach their children the same. Instead, we've taught our children that the word fear doesn't really mean fear. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've been taught that yourself. Fear doesn't mean fear. It's crazy. No, fear actually does mean fear. It means you should be afraid. I mean, that's like saying when the Bible says don't sin, well, it doesn't really mean don't sin. It means you can go ahead and sin, but God's just not very happy about it, right? God's not mad. He's just sad. Like, God's up in heaven crying because you're sinning, right? No, when the Bible says don't sin, it means don't sin. When the Bible says fear, it means fear. In Isaiah 29, God says, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will do wonderful things with this people, wonder upon wonder. And here's what he means by that. He says, the men will perish, wonder upon wonder. They're going to die. And the discerning of their discerning men shall be hidden. All you who hide from me, continues Isaiah, all you who hide from me, whose deeds are in the dark, and say, who sees us? Who knows us? You are turning things upside down. How true it is that we turn things upside down when it comes to who God is. When our fear of God, as Isaiah says, is just a mere commandment taught by men. What he's saying is you, you just learned it by rote. It's like two plus two. Oh yeah, fear God. Two plus two. It's turning things upside down rather than taking things to heart and actually viewing God for who he truly is. God says they will perish. They will not be able to hide. Again in Amos, it says, the lion has roared. Who will fear? God has spoken. Have you ever heard a lion? (laughs) It is one of the most frightening things I've ever heard in my life. I had the opportunity to go with my family um, to to an uh, African-type zoo in Arizona. And um, we traveled throughout the zoo, and we got to um, uh, the lions, and and it was feeding time. And it, it was the most fierce sound I've ever heard. And I can remember it so well. I I remember I even recorded it on my phone. I don't have that phone anymore, but I recorded it on my phone. 
and I came back and I would share it with people and I would play it and people would jump back from my phone. That's how fierce it was. Because I was like, you guys want to hear a lion? And everybody's like, oh, I, I know what a lion sounds like, roar, you know? And I would play it on my phone and they would jump back and go, oh my word. And I'm like, yeah, you're telling me. I was like standing right there. Now imagine if somebody said, oh, you don't really need to be afraid of that lion. Why don't you just climb the fence with that bloody side of beef and just feed it to him? I'd be like, you are insane. Are you kidding me? There's never an appropriate time to not be afraid of a lion. Never. And lastly, in verse 20. While the Lord preserves all who love him, it says, but all of the wicked he will destroy. Destroy means to completely obliterate. To completely wipe out. To exterminate. So that there's none left. And all literally means all. No one will escape. If you leave this earth with the title wicked, you will not escape the judgment of God. God is loving, God is kind, and he is good, but he is also just. And those who are wicked will pay for their sins with their very lives. Again, We ought never to think less of God due to his might, his power, or even his anger or wrath. For he is a just God, a righteous God. And whenever he acts mightily, he is always just. Whenever he acts powerfully, he is always right. In fact, God's most mighty, wondrous, powerful, an awesome act of all was this. It was to crush his son, his only son, whom he loved on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 says this. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And here's why I would Share with you. Here's why I would submit to you that, that this was God's most mighty and powerful and awesome act of all. Because his son had done no wrong. The reason why I believe it was God's most powerful act is probably because it was the hardest thing for God to do. Think about it. The Gospel of John, it starts out and it says what? It says, in the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God. For all eternity, Jesus has always been with his Father. Even in Genesis chapter 1, it says when they're creating, you know, Moses says, let us create Man, in our image. Who's he talking about? He's talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus has always been with his Father. 
Always been with him. Always been a good son. Right? And yet, on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you realize when you get to heaven, there will only be one person who has ever been forsaken by God, and that is the Son. You and I, since the day we have known Christ, since the day we have put our trust in him, not for one second has he ever left us. Not for one millisecond has he ever left us or forsaken us. We may go through hard times, we may go through suffering, we may go through difficulties, but we will never know what it is like to be forsaken by God. And we will never know how much the Son meant to the Father. He was a righteous son. He was a good son, right? Do you remember when he came and he began his ministry and he, and, um, and John the Baptist was baptizing, right? And, and his was a baptism of repentance. And, and he said, look, behold, it's the, son of, you know, it's the son of God. And Jesus came and he said, baptize me. And John was like, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? This is, this is a baptism of repentance. You've not sinned. You don't need to... You don't need to be baptized. And what does Jesus say? He says, no. I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm doing this. Why? Because it's what my dad told me to do. That's what kind of son he was. He was a righteous son. He completely obeyed his father in everything, all of the time, right? After he was baptized, a voice from heaven, God's voice, said, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Peter, when he writes the account of this, he says, he, he, he recounts this story and he adds this. He said, This is my son whom I love. He says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus always obeyed his father. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said, my food is to obey my father. My food. Can you believe that? He's like basically saying, my buffet. Like in my mind, I'm imagining like the greatest buffet ever, right? And just like, you know, like think about that. When you go to a buffet, like you go to Orange Leaf, I mean, you are just like, this is awesome. Like this is just amazing, right? Or, or Brian's Steakhouse or whatever. You were just like, there is so much to choose from. I am so happy. I'm so full of joy. That is what Jesus was saying. He was saying, my food, my buffet, my joy is to obey what my Father has told me to do. And he said later in John, he said, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only say what I hear my Father saying do you not realize, especially those of you who are fathers, and, and certainly mothers, you can understand this as well, what joy that brings to your heart when your children are obedient. That is the joy the father had for his son. That is the great joy the father had for his son.
in Second Samuel, when David's son Absalom rebels, goes on a tear, wants to take, wants to kill his father, does all sorts of evil and wicked things. They go to battle, and when they come back, David asks his um, his his uh, the commander of his army, "What of Absalom? What of Absalom?" And he brings back the news, and he says, "Absalom is dead." And David says, "David cries out, okay, this son of David's has been wicked.'" his entire life. And yet, this is the heart of a father, the heart of a mother, right? Regardless of what our children do, we love them, right? This is, this is what David says. Oh, Absalom! Oh, Absalom! I wish that it were I who had died instead of you. If that is the heart of an earthly father crying out for a son who has done hardly anything good in his life. Please, please comprehend the heart of a father for a son who has never done anything wrong and who has only loved you, only honored you, only obeyed you in everything. And yet, Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of God to crush him. This was God's most mighty, most wondrous, and powerful, and awesome act of all to crush his son on the cross. And may not a single one of you leave with any sort of notion that God is somehow a divine child abuser because he is not. Jesus said this in the Gospel of John. And he said this again out of honor and reverence to his father. He said, the father loves me. The father loves me. And I lay down my life and I, that I may take it up again. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus' death on the cross is not child abuse because Jesus goes to the cross willingly because he loves his father and he wants to obey him. Philippians 2 says he became obedient. Even to death on a cross, he obeyed his father. Why? Because he loved his father, but also 
because he loved you and I. It is this that we are to commend to the next generation. It is this we are to present, we are to declare to the next generation. I know it's a mystery. I know it doesn't make sense, but that's okay. The cross was God's most fierce and mighty act of all against sin towards his son, but yet at the same time, the most loving thing he could do towards us. Let us make sure the next generation knows. Please stand.